This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a delight to have you here today. On this program, uh, as you may know, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask her to read one of her own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm thrilled to say that our guest today is Joyce Carlotes, the great writer of prose and poetry, recipient of the National Humanities Medal and of so many other honours. Welcome, Joyce Carlotes. Thank you. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today is by John Updike. Uh, it's called A Lightened Life. John Updike, like yourself, a novelist and poet. He seemed to be able to manage both with equal aplomb. Yes, I feel a real kinship with John. More than kinship, you were friends. Well, we were friends in the very best sense that we wrote letters back and forth in those days when one actually wrote letters. But we rarely saw each other, so the friendship was sort of intact. <laughs> you know, um, as you mentioned, he was a great uh, writer of letters, a writer of postcards. And as it happens, I have a couple of letters from him from just that period uh, of this poem, which was published, as it happens, in the March 16th, uh, 2009 issue uh, of the magazine. And uh, I had a few letters from around, the, around that time. One of them read, I appreciate the courtesy of the friendly notes accompanying the poems you've had to send back. Alas, I did have to send a few back. But guessing the volume of rejections the New Yorker Poetry Department must deal with, I want to reassure you that you can be as gruff and terse or non-committal as you wish. It's in a way foolish of me to keep writing poetry, but then if we take all folly out of the world, what would be left? Beautiful. Yes, he was so modest. Inappropriately modest. Yes. Well, I think he probably thought of himself as a prose writer, essentially, and then the poetry was something that he ventured into. But he was an absolutely brilliant poet. I remember a television program about him when I lived in Ireland. I think it was made by the BBC. Um, oh, sometime, must have been the late 70s, maybe early 80s, which focused actually on his poetry. And I remember being struck at the time by just how good a poet he was. Yes, he's a quite beautiful poet. I think seriously underestimated. I remember uh, along the way, for example, we... Um, he sent me a, uh, a poem called Creeper. Uh, oh, yes. I know that poem. That was one that you'd thought about picking for That's today. That's beautiful. So to give you a little sense and to give our listeners a listen, little sense 
of um, what might go on behind the scenes here. I wrote to him and said, thank you so much for letting me see Creeper. I fear the delicacy in line one rather steals the thunder of delicately in line 14. Might you revisit? I'd be happy to reconsider. You know, it gives a sense perhaps of what a cheeky little fella I was, but or am, but also uh, the fact that against the general perception perhaps, um, poetry is something that is uh, like prose. It needs a bit of editing. Yes, I think most poets show their poetry to a few trusted friends. They do, and what the great thing about a friend in that regard, of course, is that they will indeed, if they're truly your friend, they'll say, actually, please, don't do that, or do yes. that under these circumstances. Well, I know John's poetry quite well. I've probably read virtually everything that John wrote over many decades. And these, this particular poem that I'm going to read in this ten-poem sequence at the very end of his life it's so heartbreaking that I hope I don't start to cry. It's really very emotionally fraught to read those last ten poems of John Updike and to realize that his life is coming to an end. But at the same time, the poetry is so beautiful. There's no self-pity. It's just really breathtaking. This is a lightened life. Tell me about what really does uh, attract you to this poem. Well, all the poems in the ten-poem sequence attracted me, and I think I chose this because it's at the very end of his life. Also, I did visit Beverly Farms. I vi- we've Ray, my first husband, Ray Smith, and I visited John and Martha at Beverly Farms a number of times. They're a very beautiful house, and so that had a particular resonance, too. Martha was the gardener, and John admired the garden. <laughs> now he uses here um, the 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 word fedexed, probably not used so much uh, prior to that. It's a moment uh, at which you know the availability of various aspects yeah. of the modern world come into play. There, he was not in many ways engaged in email, for example. No, not at all. John didn't know email. If he had lived, maybe he would have. I think I think Philip Roth is reputed not to do any email also. But what he did, of course, was to fax. And um, I think this poem probably came to me as a fax uh, when, I, when I saw it first in 2008. Um, yes. I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, Paul, but Ray and I published John Updike in our magazine quite a bit. So we got his poems and we would get his galleys back with his little handwriting and his little corrections. He was a consummate craftsman. He was utterly professional. Why don't we read this poem or listen to this poem? You read it, I, the rest of us will listen. A Lightened Life. A Lightened Life, which is the second in a ten-poem sequence, end point. Beverly Farms, April fourteenth, two 2008. A Lightened Life... Last novel proofs FedExed, the final go-through, back-and-forthing till all adjectives seemed wrong, inferior to an almost-glimpsed unreal alternative, spoken perhaps on Mars, and taxes state and federal mailed. They were much more this year, thanks to the last novel's mild success, rye fruit of terror fear and authors' tours. Checks mailed, I stopped for gas, and Plum forgot how to release the gas cap door. True, I'd been driving a rented car for weeks, 
but two. This morning I couldn't do the computer code for the accent grave in fin de siècle. One of my favorite words. What's up? What's left of me? Lovely, enlightened life by John Updike, read there by Joyce Carol Oates. Fin de siècle, one of my favorite words. Poignant aspect to that, really, isn't there? Yes, because John died soon after, and he was always a person of, of fastidious language. He chose words very, very carefully, and he, he really lived, I think, for his work. James Merrill said, I live to work, and it's such a beautiful statement. You know, um, when one reads, for example, even a, a word like last novel proofs, FedExed, uh, that resonates in a way that it's, well, my most recent, my last, in that sense, uh, novel. But, of course, it's also more likely than not, and he knows this, I suppose, his final novel. Yes. I found this poem so heartbreaking when I read it because it's as if some great glare of eternity shines through this utter trivia of a day. He's been driving around how many decades he's gone to the post office, he's gone downtown, he's gone to the bank. He's done all these things. He's got all these novel, all these book proofs that John Uppike has been going through for decades. This is the last one. He's gone through it, the final go-through, and he's changing an adjective and so forth. And I can even see John's little handwriting in, in pencil, a particular very, very distinctive handwriting and mailing out his taxes and so forth. All these things so trivial and so somehow precious because it's the last time. You know, it belongs to that tradition of American poem in which a reader might easily come away thinking, what was that about? I mean, was that really a poem at all? It has to do so evidently with the bric-a-brac, the impedimenta, the, I mean, the barely noticeable, perhaps in some sense for many people, the not worth remarking upon. Mm -hmm. It's called a light in life. So I think the focus is on the word light, that there's a light shining through. That's right, but also he's kind of, he's uh, he's been relieved in a way of all these burdens. I guess so, but, you know, he really loved life. He loved the sensuous world and the author's tours, and he can't help but boast just a little bit, very, very sweet boastfulness about his last novel, which is called Terrorist. The last novel's mild success. He pays more (laughs) taxes this year. And he, he realizes how trivial this is and how petty. But I know very well that in the last week of my life, I'll probably be concerned with some galleon correcting some page proofs it will be the same thing and sending some out, something out in the mail the final email all these things that seem so so ordinary but in the last week of your life will be so precious well our lives are made up of these activities aren't they yes except for the poetry itself which is transcendental and so that gives a form sometimes john writes in in sonnets of a kind, Mm -hmm. something we see. It's wonderful quasi-experimental things that he does with with rhyming. And it's like almost like a meta-poetry sometimes, a little like Billy Collins, who's very conscious of himself as a poet. 
You know, there's a moment there I wonder if you would uh, allow house room to this notion. Um, as I was rereading it again t- uh, today, checks mailed, I stopped for gas and plum forgot, P-L-U-M-B. Mm. And my mind went immediately, you were talking about how fastidious he was in, in terms of language. The word plum, plum of, plumum, of course, has to do with lead, plum, the plumber. And I wonder if you think under, somewhere in the back of that is a notion of whether or not the gas is leaded or unleaded. I know that's a bit, uh, it may sound a bit daft, but do you think there's anything to that? Well, I think, Paul, in the whole poem, that is the word that stands out. It is. Plum, that's absolutely right. And then Mar- and Mars is the other word that doesn't fit in. You could take both Mars and Plum out of the poem and it would just be as smooth as it is. So what does he mean, Plum forgot? It's not a, it's not a construction that I've seen in Updike often. I doubt that he used it very much. You know, I wonder if it's sometimes spelled P-L-U-M as in the fruit. I think it might be. Here, of course, because it has that... Uh, meaning of lead. We talk about plumbing the depths, of mm-hmm, sending mm-hmm. the piece of lead down into the the depths uh, of the water. And I suppose in some sense, maybe it is a little bit of, you talk, use the word meta, it might be about what might seem to be shallow here, but which actually has its own, its own strange profundity. Yeah, and then it ends with these questions. What's up? What's left of me? Well, what's up, of course, is a phrase that has a very particular resonance in, in American, in the American language, in American culture. Yes, John often used the vernacular in a, in a somewhat poetic way. What's left of me, and then he, the whole poem ends with the word me, but it's very a kind of desiccated me. And when he wrote this poem, actually, I think he had lost a lot of weight. He was obviously very aged. And you know, he had... He had lung cancer, even though he had not smoked for maybe 35 years. So the the cancer that overtook John Updike was completely unexpected, and his friends were astonished. It just shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened. And the poems reflect that surprise and like this astonishment somehow even more than the fear or the terror is this absolute surprise, a sort of metaphysical surprise. And the ten poems work through that to a kind of acceptance, a kind of drollness. So what's up, what's left of me? Well, what's left of him is the poem. Mm-hmm. So we're reading and talking about it. Right. That's, again, A Lightened Life by John Updike, published in the March 16, 2009 issue of the magazine, and read there by Joyce Carol Oates. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Uh, In the April 4th, 2016 issue of the magazine, we published your poem, Joyce Carol Oates, This is the Season, which you're going to read for us now. And in a way, it's a, a poem that's not a million miles removed in its very quiet, undemonstrative uh, style from John Updike's. Yes, I was really happy that this poem appeared in, in The New Yorker because it would then be read by all the people who know my husband Charlie, who does indeed read The Nation, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books in the hammock. <laughs> so the whole thing is extremely common and extremely quotidian and sort of homey and domestic. At the same time, I feel there is this glaring light that's shining through the whole experience. Why don't we listen to the poem and then we can talk about it? Uh, This is the season. This is the season. This is the season when the husbands lie in their hemp-woven hammocks for the last time, reading the nation in waning autumn light before dusk rises from the earth before the not knowing if ever again the earth will turn on its axis to the light. The great furnace of the light will return the husbands to the light in their hemp-woven hammocks reading the nation. Beautiful, thank you. This is the season when the husbands lie. Now that's a rather naughty <laughs> turning point of that line. That's right. Miss Joyce Carol Oates, if I may suggest. Yes, it does have all those ambiguous meanings. It does indeed. It doesn't present the husband in the best light. Well, the husband likes to lie in a hammock, and he he does do this all the time, and he's reading the nation avidly. Now, the nation has a certain resonance for people in the United States of certain political persuasion. The Nation is that magazine that's been published for forever. Mm-hmm. And it has a very small circulation. It has loyal readers, but it has virtually no effect on anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so and my husband Charlie is an old lefty. Mm-hmm. He's a red diaper baby. So he's been reading the Nation literally since he was about, you know, six years old. And nothing's changed much, in fact, with at the moment, Donald Trump. Um, very things have just sort of disintegrated a bit. Mm-hmm. Now the hemp, hemp, of course, is associated, I suppose, uh, for a couple of reasons with some of the old, the old lefties. Um, some of them, I suppose, might have smoked a bit of it. Some of them, of course, wear it uh, next to their skin. Yes, yes, it does have that kind of handcrafted, hands-on, right, sort of. I don't want to say old-fashioned or retro, just really, really kind of wonderfully loyal for perhaps a lost cause. Uh-huh. The hammock itself, you know, I'm always fascinated, of course, because of what I do for a living, reading, writing poetry, editing poetry, by the resonance of every word in the poem. <laughs> it's a great word. You know, the hammocks there, for example, there's a very particular poem which you will remember uh, written by James Wright. Uh, Do you remember that poem, Lying in a Hammock on whatever, William Duffy's farm, I think it is. And it has got, it 
there's something about that poem. Um, it ends up with the um, the line about uh, the, the the ponies. We have wasted our life. It goes back a little bit to uh, to uh, Rilke. Rilke, yeah, but yes. living the wrong life. And uh, but wonderful description again of the quotidian, of the mundane, the everyday. Uh, you know, again a poem that is almost invisible, uh, and yet makes some kind of mark in the world. Well, the word hammock is a kind of quasi-comic word. It's a sweetly comic word. There's something wonderful about it. It's an absurd word, hammock. If you say it over just a few times, it becomes completely absurd. Yes. And it's not a poetic word at all. It's a real kind of ordinary word, hammock. Yes, the ordinariness of things. I finally, I don't suppose words are either poetic or not, but it certainly it conjures up a particular a particular sense of the world. Yeah. Well, the word dusk always seems poetic. It certainly is. Now, dusk rises from the earth before the not knowing if ever again the earth. Now, there's the the great, the greatest rhyme, of course, the word <laughs> yes. earth, the word earth, rhyming with itself. And one of the things I really admire about this poem, Joyce, if you don't mind my saying so, is that uh, it comes round that corner, having rhymed with itself, will turn on its axis. And of course, the poem is itself turning on its yes. own axis at that point. Now, you're conscious of that. Yes, and you, since you're such a great poet, you notice the lie, time, light, and That's then right. light again in a nation... Nation and light sound a little bit alike. Well, it's almost as if the, the poem takes the shape of two butterfly wings or the two two parts mm-hmm. of an axe head. Uh, they mirror each other, mm-hmm. right? With and the, the hammock has its two ends in the trees. You know, I suppose there's always a possibility that uh, someone listening to us talking about the poem might think, well, you know, aren't they really perhaps giving a little too much attention to what is really quite a, a simple poem. Do you think there's a possibility? Absolutely we... not. Absolutely <laughs> not. We can't give enough attention. We can't give enough attention. I love to construct a poem, which is a construction of words, and just see what rhymes I can put in in funny places with just slight variance. Like there's a lot of the word light is used several times. It is. But I also have time. And then, as I said, the nation, the nation that, that works in there, in a way that the New Yorker wouldn't. See, the New Yorker couldn't be in there. Well, that's just, unfortunate. Well, the New Yorker is really so, so well-read that we don't have to put it in here. But the nation's not quite as well-read. Now, the word in this poem that occupies a similar place to the word plum in John Updike's poem is perhaps the word furnace. Oh, it kind of stands out a little bit, doesn't it? I don't know. I wouldn't have thought about that. Well, first of all, you've got nation, light, earth, earth, light, time, lie. It's the word that literally sticks out a little bit. Yeah, in, it's in, a man-made thing. In the overall shape of the yeah. poem. So it does draw a bit of attention to itself, the great furnace of the light. Yeah, I just thought of the furnace door being open and the sun just blaring out. But it is a man-made thing, it so the, ha- the, the hemp-woven hammocks in the furnace. Do you know what I would love you to do, if you wouldn't mind, would be to read it again. 
This is the season when the husbands lie in our hemp-woven hammocks for the last time, reading the nation in waning autumn light before dusk rises from the earth, before the not knowing if ever again the earth will turn on its axis to the light, the great furnace of the light, will return the husbands to the light in their hemp-woven hammocks reading the nation. Joyce Carol Oates reading her poem, This is the Season, which with A Lightened Life by John Updike may be found on newyorker.com. Joyce Carloats, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Thank you. And Joyce Carloats' most recent book of poems is Tenderness. Her most recent uh, book uh, is the short story collection The Doll Master and Other Tales of Terror. John Updike's final collection of poetry, alas, was End Point and Other Poems. And that's it for today from Paul Muldoon. Thank you very much indeed. John Updike's poem, A Lightened Life, is from his posthumous collection, End Point, published in 2009. It was recently reprinted in John Updike, Selected Poems, edited by Christopher Cardiff. Both of these collections are available from Alfred A. Knopf, and the poem was read on this occasion by permission of the proprietors, the John H. Updike Literary Trust. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play. The theme music is The Pitnacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.